as that defines grace for us, that uh, with grace comes freedom. And not just freedom in a generic sense. Uh, we enjoy freedom here in this country, but freedom actually from something that was holding us captive. And, uh, and I think that's a really good message. And it fits what we're talking about today as uh, we, we spend time mostly in the book of Ezekiel uh, today. When our world is messed up, as it certainly feels at the moment. We're not sure where we can go, what we can do. Uh, God's Word speaks to us. God's Word has um, directions that it points us. The image I'm using for this uh, short series, it's just four weeks, is uh, the word adrift. A lot of our familiar stability has been removed over the last six months or so. Uh, in terms of, I talked last week, in terms of places we go and people that we see. But sometimes the way that we see things may have changed also as we've had an emphasis on on racism and an emphasis on telling the stories of black history and perhaps the way we view our country and view our society and its institutions may also have changed. And what was familiar, we're reconsidering and questioning the stories that we've heard over the years. And so society has changed. Whatever society looks like in six months, it will never look like it did six months ago. Okay? Whatever society looks like in six months will not be the same as it was six months ago. That's gone. And our experiences are going to shape us, are going to form us. Uh, the way that we react, the way that we respond, the way the church responds to all of this is going to form who we are from this point on. The prophet Ezekiel experienced even greater change than we are now. In a scale of changes and societal changes, kind of capture by enemy army and relocation to enemy homeland, working, living in a refugee camp, working on construction projects is a fairly dramatic change. It's hard to to sort of go beyond that, but that was Ezekiel's experience. He lived in Jerusalem when Jerusalem was a bustling city, when life was carrying on, when, when people were doing whatever they wanted. Um, Ezekiel lived there, grew up there, spent his youth there. But then the Babylonians came. And the Babylonians took, they, they came more than once. The first time they came, they just took captives and money. And Ezekiel was part of that group of captives taken back to Babylon. And as he sits by the river one day, God appears to him gives him a message. I always want to sing that song, Ezekiel saw a wheel, you know, way up in the middle of the air, whenever I preach from Ezekiel, but I'm resisting, okay, for the benefit of us all. Um, but, but that image is how the book begins. The throne of God appears in the sky amid light and flashing, and it appears to Ezekiel. And he lets Ezekiel know that God is God in Babylon. 
just as he was God in Jerusalem. In fact, God um, has moved his glory from the temple in Jerusalem because of the breach of covenant, because of their idolatry. And God's roving chariot throne is now here present in Babylon with the people, with the exiles there. And so Ezekiel spends the first half of his book, and it's a long book, again, not as long as Jeremiah, but a long book, difficult to read with lots of images that uh, we have a hard time understanding. In fact, many of the images from Ezekiel find their way into the book of Revelation, which I think most of us would say is also a difficult book to understand. But on Wednesday night in our Bible class, we'll actually look at some of the use of Revelation, the way Revelation uses Ezekiel's images. And Ezekiel's message through the first half of his book is unless there is radical repentance, either from the people in Babylon, the the Jews living in Jerusalem, unless things change in a dramatic way, Jerusalem, the city, will not just have captives taken, will not just have its riches pillaged, it will be destroyed. Now, most of the prophetic writings that we have in our Bibles, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Hosea, most of these books are written to nations as a whole, or they're written to the kings, to the leaders of the country. They're the ones who are regarded as responsible for the state of the, the country, for the ungodliness of the country, for the oppression of the poor, for the injustice of the legal systems. These are the things that the prophets generally hone in on and and hold the leaders of that that country uh, accountable for that. And Ezekiel does his fair share of this as well. But one one of the side effects of that, maybe you can predict, is that people could, who were like you and I, um, not national leaders or city leaders, people could sit back and say, well, the country's going through a hard time. We're we're suffering, we're struggling, and it's the fault of the leaders. It's the fault of the king, it's the fault of the priests, it's the fault of the judges, it's the fault of the, the rich and the wealthy. It's the fault of those people because that's where God sends his his prophets. Or if you live down in the countryside, you could say it's the fault of the city. Like if the city would just straighten up and fly right, then, then we'd all, the Babylonians wouldn't come. We'd all experience prosperity. And so it's very easy to, to point fingers at those who are in charge because that's where God sends his message. In Ezekiel chapter 18... We're going to spend most of our time in Ezekiel 18. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'll also have it up on the screen. In verses 1 and 2, he he highlights another excuse that the people were using. They were blaming their parents. They were blaming their grandparents for the suffering they were experiencing today. They're saying, we're suffering today because our grandparents messed up, because our parents put idols in the temple. Because our parents treated the poor unfairly. 
That's why God sent the Babylonians. That's why we're living in a refugee camp in Babylon. Is because our parents messed up for generations. And God said, right, if we were to go back all the way into the books of the law, God says, I will uh, visit the sins of the parents, the iniquities of the parents on the children to the third and the fourth generations. And, and so God said he would do it, and now we're the third and the fourth generation, and we're just experiencing the consequences of our parents' mistakes. And so that's all very convenient if you don't want to take any responsibility yourself. You can either blame the government that God has sent his warnings to, or you can blame your parents, who God has said for a long time that he was going to, to punish. And the, that means that we don't actually have to make much in the way of changes. We're not real bad. How can we oppress the poor? We are poor. Um, clearly, God's not speaking to us when he says our sins have resulted in this uh, exile. And so in Ezekiel 18, he challenges the people to take personal responsibility for their actions. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat, our sour, eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So, we don't usually use that phrase, children's teeth set on edge. Um, what it's talking about here is, is there's so common to blame the previous generations for the struggle that we're having now that it had become a proverb. Okay? It's not a proverb unless it's common. And, and it had become a proverb. And the way it goes is that the parents eat sour grapes. Now, normally when you eat something sour, right, you screw up your face. So under my mask, I'm screwing up my face. And, uh, and, and you pucker up and you, uh, you want to get rid of whatever's in your mouth. Well, the, the, the proverb is that the parents eat what's sour, but the children are the ones who pucker up their faces, who, who are wanting to spit it out. They're experiencing the, the, the sensation and the taste of these sour grapes. The parents might not have even noticed. Um, and so... Ezekiel goes on and says, you've got this proverb and you're blaming your parents and you're saying it's not your responsibility, not your fault you're here in Babylonian exile. But he says, uh, that's not the case. God did say that about parents, but you have an opportunity to make a difference. He's very clear. He continues on. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for everyone belongs to me the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. And if we jump down to verse 20, uh, again we get this message very clearly. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged to them. So, if you're wicked, it's going to be charged to you. If you're righteous, you're going to receive the benefit of your righteousness. That might sound like common sense. That sounds like the way things should be in a perfect world. 
But I want you to think about how our own society works. As we approach an election year, an election month, countdown's on, right? Maybe it's just countdown on for it to be over. If, right? that, that's me. Some people are counting down to the election. Some people are counting down to the day after the election. Um, but it's getting closer. And as a consequence, there's an awful lot of finger pointing. This is just what happens in an election. We point fingers. And, and some of those fingers are taking credit. They're saying, I did this. All right, I did this that's good. I did this that's good. Look what I did. Or look what I will do or could do. And then there's the other finger that says, look what he did. Look what she did. Look at crime. Look at health care. Look at this problem. Look at... And, and we say that it's their fault. And we do that. We point it at our government, whether it be national, state, local. That's just the way the game is played, right? We point fingers. What we're doing is blaming those people for our lives. For the problems that we encounter, we're saying those people are responsible. And if those people are responsible, then I'm not responsible. My struggles, my difficulties, my hardships have nothing to do with me. They have to do with those people. Of course, we've had a lot of elections over the years, and we've also had continuing hardship. It doesn't really seem to, to change all that much. Likewise, we see it in terms of our past. Okay? I, I think we, we understand that in issues of, of racism, we live with consequences and decisions that were made in previous generations. And so there are some of us that want to say, well, well, that's not my responsibility. I didn't make that decision. I didn't act or behave in that way. This is just the way things are. And so we, we do exactly what we see being done here in Ezekiel. We blame political, state, community leaders, and we blame previous generations. And taking responsibility is a difficult thing for us to do. Now, certainly these things impact us, right? It'd be naive to say that our past nationally, you know, our national history, our elected officials, that none of those things make a difference in our lives. They certainly do. But regardless of all of that, we remain responsible for our own decisions and our own actions. As Ezekiel said, the righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged to them. To those adrift, living in exile in Jerusalem, despairing of the situation, God is actually saying, things are bad. Right? I know things are bad for you. But they could get worse. If you don't take responsibility, if you don't change the way you're living, if you don't prioritize your relationship with me, if you don't focus on worshiping and living in the way that honors and glorifies me, then there's more consequences. Right? There's more to come. It, this is not the worst possible outcome that you are living in right now. That sounds pretty grim, doesn't it? Um, 
I, I don't know about you, but I don't want God telling me that message. Hey, Peter, sorry your life is so difficult and, and you're going through so much, but there's more coming. Like, I, I can get that from a lot of people, but if I get that from God, that's sort of another level of scary. But the good news is that, that just as our individual futures are not totally determined by past generations or past experiences. The same principle applies to us individually, right? I mean, nationally that's the case that our future is not totally dependent on the past, although it's influenced. And as individuals, our future is not dependent on the past, although it's always part of who we are. In verse 21, Ezekiel continues, but, but, if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them because of the righteous things they have done. They will live. Like this is not just past generations, this is me in my past. The, the, the things I did in my past haven't even set me on a trajectory that can't be changed. If I will take responsibility for those things, if I will acknowledge them, if I will go to God and say, God, change me, change me, make me, make me more like you. I, I want to live righteously. I want to trust Jesus. God says, We'll forget about that. There's going to be consequences from them, but we'll forget about that. Let's deal with what's ahead as we go and live righteously. And he says, if you live justly, and if you live righteously, then you will live. Because of the righteous things they've done, they will live. And he says it works the other way as well, that even if you've lived righteously and then you turn to wickedness, that that also has its own consequences. You see, God doesn't invest all of this effort into the ministry of Ezekiel just to make people feel bad about themselves. That's not his point. He's not traveling on his chariot throne in the sky to Babylon just to rub their noses in the mud and say, you terrible people, you should feel bad. You deserve this. Rather, he wants people to change. He's probably talking to the leaders that, because it's most likely the leaders, the nobility of Jerusalem that were taken to Babylon. And, and so he's talking to the people who had been influential figures in Jerusalem. And, and he says to them, no matter your wickedness, if you're hearing this message, it's not too late for you to change. And so the message, I think, to this point through Ezekiel should connect with us really well. When we find ourselves adrift, when we, we, we shouldn't be spending our energy pointing fingers, looking at other people for the causes. Sure, we're at the mercy of the wind and the waves. We're at the mercy of the pandemic. We're at the mercy of the government. All of, all of these things happen around us. But Ezekiel says, use this time 
in exile, this time adrift to examine our own lives, to think about where we are, what we need to change, what, what adjustments we need to make, where we need to refocus on God, um, where perhaps we've, we've lost that focus over time. Do I have sinful attitudes that I need to change? Have I hurt people that I need to, to make amends? I think most of us here are willing to say, I'm not perfect, right? I mean, if you're perfect, raise your hand. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm not raising my hand. I'm just showing you how to do it. But, but that is a cheap and lazy statement to say, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Because it, it doesn't require any effort, any thought, any accountability or responsibility. And so Ezekiel says, take responsibility. Don't just say, hey, I'm just part of the crowd. Take responsibility. And I think one way we can do that is to actually write down. If you want to write down, I'm not perfect on a piece of paper, do that. Right? But, but then write down something concrete that you're not perfect in. Now, there's no need to make your list of 120 different flaws in your personality and behavior. It might just be one or two things. It's, everybody's different there, right? With different levels of honesty and introspection. But writing down something concrete is the beginning of taking responsibility. And, and then the, the second step in this towards radical repentance, radical turning around, is to say, what's the, the first step I can take to improve, to correct that issue that I, that I wrote down? Because, you know, we've, if you're like me, you've had a lot of years and a lot of practice to get really good at doing wrong. Okay? We didn't get good at doing wrong overnight. The first time you told a lie to your parents, you probably got caught. The second and the third and the tenth time, you probably got caught. But somewhere along the line, you told a lie to your parents after all that practice, and you got away with it. And so began a life, a career, of not always being completely honest. And we've practice that for a long time. We're not going to just suddenly flip a switch, go cold turkey, and never tell another one. But there, there's a first step that we can take to becoming people of greater integrity and honesty. And so write that down. I think of the journey from, from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's about, probably, by my guesstimate, about 600 miles. That's a lot of steps. Awful long way to walk. God says, you're in Babylon, but I'm going to take Israel back to Israel. We're going to rebuild Jerusalem. There's a hope, there's a future there, but it's going to take just as many steps to come back to Jerusalem as it did to go to Babylon. And the question is, are we willing to take that journey? And whereas we traveled to Babylon under, in chains and under oppression, we're going to travel back under grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. It's a completely 
different journey, even if the distance and the number of steps are the same. And so while we're dealing with this guilt and facing our imperfections, Ezekiel has a final verse, a final reminder here for us, a reminder about the character of God. In verse 23, we find a statement that if you didn't know better, might think came from the New Testament. He says, God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? The answer is no, and we know that because of what he says next, declares the Sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? You see, I, I, think, I think too often we picture God sitting on his throne with a giant heavenly sin swatter. And, and every time we mess up, it's like whack, whack, whack. And we've felt the consequences of that sin swatter sometimes, right? We've seen other people face those consequences. And that can be our dominant picture of God. But God himself says, I don't take delight in that. There are consequences to sin. I am a judge. I, I do um, practice justice and enforce justice upon the world. But what pleases me is when people turn from their ways and live. When they turn from their wicked ways and live. God's on our side. He's cheering us on not waiting for us to slip and fail again. He's waiting for us to get up and keep moving back to Jerusalem. So before I finish, I want to go to uh, the most famous image from the writings of Ezekiel found in chapter 37. Chapter 18 is all about personal, uh, personal responsibility. And we need to take that. We need to, to turn our lives around and examine our lives from time to time. But in Ezekiel 37, God gives this vision, this valley of dry bones. I have no idea if it looked like this picture or not, but perhaps it did. It's a terrible picture when you think of this valley filled with human bones, skeletons, just mixed up, sun-bleached. It's death. And, and then in verse 3, God asks Ezekiel a silly question. Can these bones live? Now, Ezekiel, if he's like you and I, he says, no, they're dead. God, not even with all our DNA and biological technology can we bring bones back to life. There's nothing we can do about it. Those bones are not only dead, they've been dead for an awful long time because they're totally exposed. They're starting to get buried. That's how I'll answer it anyway. Are you, like, trying to trick me, God? But Ezekiel is much more spiritual and wiser and uh, humble than I am. And he says, God, only you know. Like, that's the right answer. If God asks you a question, just, God, only you know the answer. Because whatever I think I know probably isn't right. That's a tremendous acknowledgement of God's power and of God's sovereignty that Ezekiel doesn't place any limits on what God can do. You look at this devastating picture, this image of dry bones, and, and can it come back to life? 
And Ezekiel says, well, only you know that, God. There's a possibility there because you are God. The most unhopeful image that anyone could imagine has hope because God is the one asking the question. Now, of course, as we, we read earlier, the bones stand up. I mean, again, I don't know if you like blood and stuff, but the bones stand up and the muscles grow on. Like, it's still pretty gross, I think. And the, the flesh and then the skin, the hair. Finally, you have these complete people standing where it was just bones. And, and then God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to, to the breath. Call the wind, and the wind comes from the four corners of the, of the earth, and it fills the lungs and gives life to these bodies. God is able to give life in the most hopeless of circumstances. Now, symbolically, this has all sorts of images of the Garden of Eden, right? As, as God stooped down in the dust as he formed humanity, formed Adam out of the dust, as he breathed, and Eve, out of, the, out of Adam's rib, and then as he breathes life into them. And, and so what God is saying is, I'm not only the creator God, I am the re-creator God. I'm the re-creator God. And so I hope the the message uh, together is is clear to you that no matter how far adrift we are, no matter how vast our ocean, no matter which direction our nation takes, no matter how confusing our culture becomes, no matter how desperate our personal circumstances are, God is not just the creator God who acted back at the dawn of history. He is the recreator God that continues to act in our lives and in the lives of many between the dawn of history and today and will in the future. He's the God that takes our hopelessness and turns it into hope, who takes our darkness and infuses the darkness with light. He takes our skeletons, our sicknesses, our hurts, our shame, and he heals them when we thought they were beyond healing. He makes them whole. He breathes life into them. He gives us a future worth living for. Now, to be real with you, it's not as though all of creation is going to be restored in your lifetime or mine. There's plenty of Christians that die in poverty. God didn't see them in their poverty and give them wealth. Most of us die in our sickness, right? God didn't heal every sickness. But he will one day. God is working to redeem, to restore, to recreate the world. Not everyone in Babylon was going to see a glorious, rebuilt new city of Jerusalem. But Israel would. God was going to be working in that direction regardless of whether each individual saw it or not. And so this is the invitation that he gives us. Will we participate with him in this recreation? Can can we 
move with him in, um, or, or join with him in taking what is broken and making it whole. It begins with our lives. That's what chapter 17 is about, that, that regardless of what our wickedness, what our past was, that we can live righteously in the future. The New Testament tells us that, that God gives us his spirit to give us that ability. God gives us his breath. The word for breath and spirit is the same. And so there's just so much sort of connection between these images. So God says, do you want to come with me and be part of recreation? That's our question. It begins with us, our lives. It spreads throughout creation. We're going to... uh,